to provide guidance to mankind. No vision can grasp Welcome to a radical discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damonosophy 2.0 with your host, Paul Frick. Welcome, my friends and fellow Damons, to another episode of Damonosophy 2.0, the first episode of 2018, the new year. And no, I didn't make a Christmas episode. Um, I thought about it. There's a lot you can talk about. Every year when Christmas starts to roll around, for those of us on the left-hand path, there always is a discussion that emerges about how do you celebrate Christmas? What does Christmas mean to you on the left-hand path? Is there relevance for Christmas and the holiday season when we're on the left-hand path? And then there's always a big deconstruction of is Christmas um, pagan in origin? Is Santa Claus really Odin? Is the Christmas tree really the Yule tree? Um, is, is it really just a Christian holiday or is it really Roman, uh, the Roman Saturnine festival where a lot of the uh, imagery can be traced back to that too. And then of course it's always, uh, this is always influenced by all the Christians telling us to remember that the season is about Jesus. It's gotta be about Jesus. Don't forget the reason for the season while at the same time they're conveniently forgetting a good 5,000 years of documented human history outside of the uh, Judeo-Christian reality tunnel. And all of these people like to forget the fact that really all of the Santa Claus stuff and and, and the toys and all that really was resurrected by uh, good old American capitalism. It was Macy's and Saks Fifth Avenue um, in the, what, the 30s, 40s. Uh, reviving things with uh, getting people going and for uh, shopping and you know buying toys and gifts for each other and then you have great movies like Miracle on uh, 34th Street and and stuff like that now I don't like it's a wonderful life that much but I do like watching those old Christmas movies from that time period when people were just happy and excited and and uh, it got real emotional about love for family and kith and kin and the uh, wonder of, of, of childhood, um, the ability of childhood uh, or children to suspend disbelief as far as the whole concept of Santa Claus, which is, of course, a, a magical technique that uh, some of us take with us into maturity in order to actually, um, you know, maybe become more successful and effective at life. So... So there's a lot of great stuff in there. You know, this year I saw for the very first time ever, I saw the entire film White Christmas um, with uh, good old Danny Kaye and, of course, Bing Crosby. Everyone's heard him, uh, you know, sing the song White Christmas many times. 
and to actually see the film, I was blown away. I mean, what an entertaining piece. And it's from that uh, that time period, too. I want to say it's from the four, late 40s. Maybe it's the early 50s. It's hard to see. I think it's been technicolorized. So, um, But, man, they're riding those trains, and, and they're doing those those like uh, old-time nightclub acts and tap dancing and everything. And it's like, man, I just I love that stuff. So that's what I love about the season is that there is so much ECI wrapped up in it. Um, and ECI, of course, that is erotic crystallization inertia, uh, which is a LeVayan concept of by surrounding yourself with the right kind of images um, say from the past, then you can actually invoke the feeling and the presence of the spirit of those times and gain something very unique from that. So that's what Christmas is to me ultimately is a huge, wonderful opportunity for ECI that comes up every once in a year or once a year. And I don't really care that much uh, about the question of, of uh, the authenticity or the origins of it. It doesn't really matter. I mean, like so many things in life, so many uh, cultural traditions, the reality is that there's so much stuff wrapped up in it anyhow. There's so many different elements that you can trace back to different origins that, uh, to me, it just uh, becomes sort of a fool's error to try and nail it down to one ultimate absolute origin. Um, There's a lot of stuff in it, and people enjoy it and get something out of it. It's a good time of year, and so... Uh, so that's my take on Christmas, even though it's a little bit late. Anyhow, forget about that. That was last year. Welcome to another great episode. We've got another great talk from Kona, from the Kona Gathering. And it is our good friend, Toby Chapel, who you may remember. He's on the show uh, a little while back. And this is a talk that he gave on... Uh, reframing the narrative. And we'll get to that in a minute. But first, uh, I have an announcement that I want to make. I'm going to be speaking at this year's Flambeau Noir conference. That's April 27th through the 29th in Portland, Oregon. Super excited about this. Um, I'm going to be speaking alongside lots of other cool occult luminaries like uh, Peter Gray, from uh, the Scarlet Imprint Press and Michael Ford and former uh, Damon Osophy guest Jeremy Crow, and um, it's it's going to be real exciting. Um, I'll reveal more details as as we move closer uh, to the event, but I'm excited. I've never been to Portland before. Uh, can you believe that? In all of my years of experience, of like running around in bands and touring around and rambling around the country for work and this and that. I've never, ever been to Portland, Oregon. And it's a shame because, I mean, it's one of the, it's one of the cool places to be um, from what I'm told. And so it will be my first excursion into Portlandia, and I couldn't be more excited to doing it at Flambeau Noir. So, um, so w- without further ado... We'll uh, queue up the Toby Chapel talk, and it's called Reframing the Narrative. And this is a talk that shows that the keys to self-transformation are not always found in arcane books of magical lore, and that a sense of play is needed 
to see the lessons lurking in life. And I think you're going to really enjoy this. He uses baseball and his extensive knowledge of the sport to illustrate his points about reframing the narrative. And I can I can groove with it. I'm an occasional baseball fan. Like, you know, I got, you know, being a, a Houstonian, I, you know, I mean, I got a little excited watching the Astros go to the World Series in 2017. That was pretty nice. Um, and I had my first actual baseball game that I ever attended, other than Little League stuff, you know, when you're a kid, um, was I saw the uh, Cincinnati Reds play in uh, Cincinnati at the field there. I can't remember the name of it. It's a famous baseball field, but I went there with some uh, uh, some, some some coworkers uh, many years ago on a on a uh, work paid trip. And you know what? It was actually some of the most fun that I've ever had. Going to a baseball game is actually really fun. I mean, you get a beer and you get, you know, your peanuts and popcorn and you just sit and watch and, you know, you get engaged with it. It's nothing like watching it on television. On television, it's like you're so removed from it and you're just uh, have bits and pieces of it uh, kind of, um, you know, taken out of context. But when you're there, it's like you really feel that you're in the action. So maybe it's a difference from like seeing a, a rock concert on TV versus being there in public. But um, I actually, I actually got into the game, you know, and that's, that takes a lot for me to say that because, you know, I was a, I was a nerd in high school. I, you know, wasn't a super athletic kind of guy. Um, but it was really cool to see it. But anyhow, um, I digress, uh, Toby Chappell's extensive knowledge of, uh, baseball and the sport, um, is, is something that he delves into in order to show us the, power of reframing the narrative and so without any further ado here it is toby chapel today we're going to be talking about as you can see on the slide and on your schedule we're going to be talking about changing the narrative what happens when you don't like the story that you've got and how do you get a new one so last november something interesting happened that had not happened for 108 years the chicago cubs won the world series they not even been. That's why the world ended. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it's suspicious timing, I'll admit. Um, so they've not even been to the World Series since 1945. That's a long time. For these 108 years that were certainly composed mostly of futility and, and heartbreak, overwhelmingly driven by the extent the team and the franchise believed for over a century they were simply destined to be failures. So much so that rumors of a curse, which we'll talk more about later, move from mere superstition into actual belief. So how do they finally overcome this? By changing the narrative. Stop believing the things that are holding you back. Find new things to believe and then you make them happen. So just like with a profound ritual though, it doesn't mean a damn thing unless you follow it up with concrete action outside the chamber to put your new mindset into action and to have truly changed your mindset into that of someone who does accept the possibility of true change into their worldview. So why baseball instead of any other flavor of sports ball? It's all about those angles. (laughs) You got nine innings. 
Each side takes <laughs> nine chances to play offense, nine chances to play defense. You got nine men on a team. It's 90 feet from first base to second base to third base to home plate. It's 60 feet six inches for some weird reason to the mound, which doesn't fit into it. But it's and the other thing I love so much about baseball is it has a mythology like no other sport. You have all the various colorful nicknames that go with the players. You have the Yankee Clipper, the Splendid Splinter, Hammer and Hank, the Big Unit, the Big Hurt, the Big Train, Big Poppy, Big Poison, Oil Can Void, the Kid, the Hawk. And of course, the babe. You even have entire teams have their own nicknames. Murderer's Row, the Big Red Machine, Harvey's Wallbankers. Ken Burns, the renowned documentary filmmaker, among his many films has three of his epics, the multi-part epics that play for weeks on PBS every time they need a few dollars, which cover the three subjects that to him shaped American culture more than anything else in the 20th century. They were the Civil War, jazz, and baseball, the three most uniquely American things that he knew of. So let's set the stage a bit for how we ended up here. The first seven World Series started in 1903. You notice that the Chicago Cubs are all over this thing. They were the first, the original dynasty. They were the team that everyone had to beat every year. They were, as you can see here, they're the first team to appear twice and the first team to win it twice. So it started off great. They were the original baseball dynasty. Which brings us to the first rule of changing the narrative. You cannot assume that success will continue unabated. So following 1908, when they won the World Series, they then played and lost it in 1910, 1918, 1929, 1932, 1935, 1938, and 1945. Which brings us to our second rule here. When you get close to success again, you can't give up when it doesn't come immediately. You've got to remember the long desire. So looking at the things that play into this whole narrative, the legend's starting to build. There's a bit of the, hey, why can't they win? Everyone else is winning. So in 1932 World Series, you have Babe Ruth of the, of the New York Yankees playing Cubs. This is the one of the infamous so-called the called shot. He points to left center field and then promptly hits a home run to that spot. The Yankees win the game, win the World Series. Some say it happened, some say it didn't happen. It's definite that he pointed. No one's quite sure if he was pointing just to send a message, if he was really trying to say, I'm hitting a home run right there, etc. And of course, he then played up the myth himself, being a bit of his own myth maker. This brings us to our third rule. You still have your own story to tell even when you've become part of someone else's. By this point, the Yankees were unstoppable. They um, have, over the years, won more World Series than any other team by a very long margin, sort of become their own sort of legend. But with the loss in 1945, the legend starts to become even bigger. There was a local tavern owner named William Cyanus who uh, owned a tavern called the Billy Goat Tavern. Mr. Cyanus was rather famous, sort of eccentric around town, and enjoyed walking around town with his mascot, his Billy Goat, was his pet. They, they took walks together. Don't want to know what else they did together, but they, they, they were close. He shows, shows up for Game 4 1945 World Series versus the Detroit Tigers, another one of the very old teams. Shows up, of course, with his goat. It's his constant companion to go everywhere together. 
gatekeeper uh, merely doing their job. So uh, I'm not sure you can let the goat in here, even if he has a ticket. Turn, turns the goat away. So following this, being the local eccentric and being a relatively well-known man around town, sends a telegram to the owner of the Cubs and says, you've disrespected my goat. <laughs> and you will never win again. <laughs> that just got real. <laughs> but, as if things are not bad enough, 1969, the Cubs are in first place by a couple of games. They're it's in the middle of summer. They're playing the New York Mets, who had, to that point, sucked, been a very wretched team. The great Cubs third baseman, Ron Santo, was on deck waiting his turn at bat. And then somehow, no one even knows how it got into the stadium. And I shit you not, a black cat walks across his path. <laughs> the Cubs lose the game, promptly collapse, fall eight games behind the Mets, lose out to them. And the Mets become known as the Miracle Mets for having turned their own fortunes around and won the World Series that year against all the odds. Thanks, Katie. Again, you're, you're part of someone else's story. By this point, the years are getting long, and you have even great Cubs players like Ernie Banks and Ferguson Jenkins and people of that generation who were fantastic players, the Hall of Famers, who never even had the opportunity to play in a World Series. And by the 1980s, the Cubs have even taken on a nickname, those lovable losers. Everyone believes it. Those guys are just a bunch of sad sacks. They're never going to win. Isn't this fun? Let's go play ball and drink our beer and enjoy Wrigley Field and then go home and go, well, well, at least we had fun. Now, part of this, they're always at or near the top of the league in attendance for games. Everybody loves the Cubs, even though they suck. And in fact, many people love them because they suck. You know, enforcing, sort of enforcing this. So rule number four, making the right moves isn't enough if you still think of yourself as a loser. And this goes closely with the fifth rule. If your inner desire does not match your outer effort, you will not succeed. By 2003, they brought in more magnificent players, young pitchers, brought in a manager who has won in other places, a man named Dusty Baker who also had a well-earned reputation for ruining his young pitcher's arms through overuse. And so you have two pitchers, Mark Pryor and Kerry Wood, who were the best new pitchers that anyone has seen in many a year, both of whose careers ended after several years through arm trouble and other issues because of their overuse through trying so desperately to win. We'll throw him out there every day, he'll, make, he'll let us win. 2003 was the year that they started to win a little bit, though. They win their division. They are in the National League Championship Series, which is what you win to then go to the World Series. And then we end up with the moment when the curse kicks into overdrive, the so-called Steve Bartman incident. At the eighth inning of Game 6 in a best-of-seven series, <coughs> Chicago is winning three games to two, and they're winning this particular game three to nothing in the eighth inning. An innocent foul ball is hit. Goes over to the uh, third base side just past the dugout, Left fielder Moises Alou runs into the sands to try to catch it. It's barely over the fence. A lifelong Cubs fan by the name of Steve Bartman sitting in the first row reaches up at the same time, knocks down the ball. He's later escorted out of the stadium through security because he's being actively threatened and, in fact, had to change his home phone number um, and other things because of, uh, because of people's reaction to it. There's no guarantee that Alou would have actually caught the ball. 
And in fact, the Cubs were already there already loaded the bases. They were, they were already letting the game slip away, even though it still looked like they were going to win. But from this point on, this was such a turning point, the such validation of the narrative. When this happens, the Cubs are winning three to nothing in the eighth inning. By the end of the eighth inning, they were losing eight to three. They went on to lose game seven, and then, and then that was it. So this is the sixth rule. Someone else's fuck-up can affect you, even when it doesn't really affect you. <laughs> In other words, if you shift blame to the external, it still impacts your ability to evolve your own story. You always have the responsibility for what you do and what you make of your own story. So lessons learned from this. Managers dismissed, players, arms fall off. Have to start over again. There's another sort of parallel legend to this. You have the Boston Red Sox which is a very famous one, 2004. The Boston Red Sox win for the first time since 1918. You know, lifetime of heartbreak for many of their own fans. They have their own moments where it seemed like they were on the verge and then it crumbles down. One of our lifelong New Englander in the corner over here knows exactly what I'm talking about. The curse. Yeah, the, this was the curse of the babe, the aforementioned Mr. Ruth. The side story to this, except for the fact that one of the key architects of turning around that franchise, making the changes where you can actually win despite being cursed, was hired by the Cubs as their president of baseball operations, basically giving complete control of the team top to bottom of fix this, figure out and fix it. He comes in 2011, the man by the name of Theo Epstein, brings in a manager from another team who had also had similar success making a fast turnaround with another team the relatively new Tampa Bay Devil Rays. Both of them have critical roles in overcoming the heartbreak of the teams that they had come from and know a thing or two about winning. They help to bring in the new attitude of this outside influence. So this is our seventh rule. True outside perspective, untouched by your previous failures, but with the knowledge of how they've overcome their own failures, is a crucial key. This is why we have a school you have to surround yourself with those who have accomplished what you want to accomplish and who can bring you different perspectives and critical feedback on how you can get there yourself. Now, Epstein and Madden started by rebuilding the team and its attitude from the ground up. Started with the amateur player draft that happens every year and assembled players and coaches in the minor leagues because these are the players that then later become part of the major leagues. You start at the bottom, you change the attitude, bring it up. This is similar to some of what we spoke of in, in conjunction with Arte and our working, of changing the attitude from the bottom up, get the next generation thinking the right way as one of the key stones to your strategy. It's not the only thing you can do. It's never going to be enough by itself, but it's crucial. So by the time these players come to the major leagues, they're coming in with a winning attitude. They believe they can win. They don't believe, oh, well, as soon as I get there, we're going to start losing because, well, we're the Cubs and we suck. And you have to bring in this change in attitude as well, this willingness to forget what they think they know about what it takes to win to really embrace the new ideas. Brings us to our eighth little rule. The high-level desire that you can articulate must be supported by your deeper needs and with all aspects of your body and self-complex working together toward realizing those desires. Can't just fix part of it, and you can't fix it all at once, but you've got to tackle all the pieces. So things are starting to change. 2015, the Cubs go to the National League Championship Series again. They lose, but not because of a misplayed ball, not because of a curse. They lost to a better team, but they learned from what they had done. 
their old, old friends, the Mets, were who bit them that year. They then lost in the World Series themselves. The tide is turning. They're starting to believe that we can win. And you start hearing actual talk of, you know, next year we got a good shot. What are, what are the pieces we're still missing? By the middle of the 2016 season, in the middle of summer, Cubs are in first place. They're winning. They're playing very well. They're playing cohesively as a team. They're still having problems with their bullpen, the relief pitchers that have to come in toward the end of the game to keep the game close so that the offense can catch up. Make a trade for a man named Aroldis Chapman. More with a nickname. Chapman is nicknamed the Cuban Missile. The reason Chapman is the Cuban Missile is Chapman has thrown a baseball faster than any man ever in the history of the game. His fastest clock pitch in 2010 was at 105.1 miles per hour. That's 175 kilometers an hour, for those of you that speak sanity in your measurements. <laughs> in fact, in the same appearance where he threw the baseball that fast, he threw 25 pitches to the San Diego Padres. Every single one of them was faster than 100 miles an hour. Of the top 10 fastest pitches ever tracked by radar, he's thrown, I believe, six of them. So do not piss this man off if he has a round object to throw at you. <laughs> he turns out to be the missing piece. The Cubs make it to the World Series fairly easily, frankly. They just steamrolled the Nationals first in the Division Series and then the Dodgers. Things are looking up, but they face the Cleveland Indians in the World Series. Cleveland Indians, again, they have a bit of their own history. The Cleveland Indians have not won a World Series since 1954. Whichever of these teams wins is going to break their long streak, the two longest streaks in the history of organized sports in America, for how long it takes you to win again when you've ever won it. Both have a lot to ride on this, but nothing about this is easy. Not for the Cubs, at least. Get into Game 7. This is actually in Cleveland. They get out to a quick 3 to nothing lead. Everyone's going crazy. The Cubs are going to win. Cubs are win. We just have to hang on until the end. But it's okay because we got that guy. Now, this guy had pitched in five of the previous six World Series games. If you know anything about what it takes to throw a baseball, especially at a high rate of speed, it's generally a combination of two things, and some of it's based on uh, physiology of, of, of the pitcher. It's generally raw arm strength is certainly a part of it, but there's also how they move through their windup to basically put momentum behind it as they move their way forward. Throwing a baseball 105 miles an hour is going to take a lot out of you. He's pitched in five of the last six games, as I said. He's getting tired. But the problem is he's the one that they have to rely on. He's the one that got them there, has all of his qualities that make him the guy to go to. He's the guy that they got specifically for this purpose. He's there to win game seven of the World Series. So he doesn't come into the game till later. He's a relief pitcher. He comes in towards the end. So a couple runs here and there, and, and then it ends up with... Um, so you end up in going to the bottom of the eighth. Over this point, six to three. Things are looking pretty good. So it's the eighth inning. You know what? Bring in Chapman. We got to win this. We got to stop him. We can't let them have these last things. He's gassed. He comes in. He's got nothing left. He's not even hit 100 miles an hour, although it's still 98, so you still want to fuck around with that. And it's also, it's not just about speed. It's also about movement on the pitch. A very, a straight fastball coming right at you. It's easy to hit because you see exactly where it's going. Many of the guys that throw very fast, part of their success is not just the raw speed, but it's also the movement on their pitches as the spin causes it to behave in different ways through the air. So his pitches are flattening out because he's tired. He can't put as much spin on it. He's not throwing as fast. Gives up a three-run home run. Game's tied. Bottom of the eighth. He's devastated. Absolutely devastated. 
There's no one else in the bullpen that the manager trusts enough to bring in. He sticks around for a little longer because there's nothing else. He gets out of the inning. We're going going to the eighth. Eighth's done. We're all tied. Go to the ninth. Cubs don't score on the top. Chapman comes out in the bottom. Throws three pitches or so. Batter gets on. They realize we have no choice. we got to go to somebody else. Luckily, the next person they brought in was able to hold them as well. So, end of the ninth, going into extra innings. Get some free baseball tonight. Immediately after the ninth inning concludes, the weather report finally turned ominous. They've been tracking a storm all evening. The bottom falls out. Rain away. Worst time. It's like 11.30 at night by this point. Your worst time. You want to get it over with. You're still kicking yourself because you just let the game get away, possibly. You let them tie it up. The home field always has an advantage because they always bat last. They have the last chance to score. This is not the situation you're going to be in. When there's a rain delay, all the players are taken off the field. They usually go back into the clubhouse uh, where they can relax. If they're actually in the lineup at the moment, they'll throw to keep loose so you can go back out, whatever. One of the players says, everybody in the weight room, I got something to say. It's one of the people you wouldn't have expected to say it. There was one person they had acquired that was supposed to come in and be one of the key pieces to this, a man named Jason Hayward. Used to play for the Braves, was traded to the Cardinals, signed as a free agent with for an obscene amount of money. The, the amount would piss you off, especially if you saw his batting average. Um, <laughs> has had a terrible year his first year as a Cub. He was supposed to be one of the saviors. Was had a terrible year. He was the one who called the meeting. Comes in, gives the inspirational speech, tells him, you know what? I couldn't do it, but you guys can. We can do this. Remember everything that brought you here so far. <clears throat> By this point, Chapman, the 105-mile-an-hour pitcher, the Cuban missile, is crying like a baby because he knows he's probably just screwed the pooch. He probably just gave up the whole thing. This is the reason he's here, and he couldn't do it. It was very, very, very emotional time for them. And all this is happening behind the scenes. This is in the clubhouse. No one knows what's going on. Come out the top of the 10th, it was this hellacious thunderstorm just blows right through, 15 minutes. Just long enough to get them off the field to gather themselves up, figure out what they're going to do. Coming out the top of the 10th, first batter up hits a home run. Cubs are up by one. A couple of batters later, somebody else knocks in another run. There's a problem. They've taken Chapman out of the game. He can't pitch anymore. Once you're removed from the today's lineup, you can't come back into the game. It's not like soccer or hockey where you, you sub in and out. So they bring in the starting pitcher from the night before. It's the World Series, the last game you're going to pitch. you got all winter to rest your arm. You can do it. He comes in, promptly gives up a home run. Every Cubs fan in the world goes, oh, fucking again. <laughs> but bring in another pitcher. Shuts them down. Cubs win. You know, eight to seven in ten innings. One of the greatest game sevens ever. The longest drought in sports history. Brings us to our ninth and perhaps even most important rule. When you finally realized your dream, having truly changed the narrative, be sure to savor it, but know there's always more work to be done. Go back to rule number one. Can't assume success will last. You have to keep working for it. This year the Cubs won. They started off playing fairly badly, ended up coming uh, from behind, won their division, 
won the division series easily, lost in six games, I think, to the Dodgers. So you can't win every year. Even the Yankees don't win every year. But they didn't lose this year because they said, well, you know, you know, fucking Billy Goat, mm, stupid black cat. Mm, mm, mm. It's, it was the, you know what, we played this year. This is what we need. This is, this is our vision. We can do this because we're winners now. Uh, questions, comments? Stump the presenter with baseball trivia. Wrong <laughs> <laughs> crowd. The week after Wrong that crowd. last year, the Australian Rules football team, the uh, Footscray Bulldogs, with the same colours as the Cubs, <laughs> beat the longest losing streak in their game as well. So, you know. Yeah, it's one of those, maybe it becomes infectious sort of things. The Indians are still haven't won. The, the Indians actually set a new record this year for most consecutive games won, but still were not able to make it to the World Series. Yeah. There's no guarantee. You always have to be vigilant. You always have to continue fighting. But you've got to have the right attitude when you do it. This is the lesson here. Sometimes it takes 100. Uh, it was like 2011 when they brought in Epstein. So it you know, took 103 years to finally figure out the right attitude to have. And then another, another five years to get everyone in the organization actually believing it. You can't change these things on a dime. You don't just win at a team sport like this just because you got lucky. That you got to have some luck, but you have to be in position for that luck to help you. That's where you have to do all these other things to, to build up that winning attitude, the right pieces, the right story to help you get there, and then hope that the baseball gods were on your side that time. Yeah, I was going to say momentum. I mean, people do easily forget, you know, if you, if you have, like, one victory, like, even in music, a band puts out an awesome album, like, the rage for a certain amount of time, and sometimes it's hard to follow up, or you can follow up and have continued success, but, you know, it, it if you don't stay in the, in the spotlight and keep the success going, even with your best effort, if you've had like a, a long pause, mm-hmm. you come back and you know, it's, all, it's never the same and it might not be the same. Uh, oh yeah, there's a lot to building momentum in some ways, especially how it's kind of used in this. I would say it's an exact analog, um, but it does remind me somewhat of weird. And weird is momentum in a lot of ways. And just like you know, weird doesn't always bring you what you want immediately, momentum, again, it, it's part of the picture but definitely is that one of those important pieces to it. You're still responsible for the action you take in that moment where you can actually affect the outcome. Your methods have to evolve, all right? The same things aren't gonna work forever. Like the Yankees, you know, how many, what, what's their longest day streak? They, they, they have like a decade almost. Yeah, yeah, they, they, won, they won five in a row in the, in the early 60s. They won nine out of 10 years. Uh, you have players like Yogi Berra, who they're at the right time, who actually retired with the World Series ring for each finger. Oh, jeez. But you imagine trying to use that same formula. I don't know if I. Change, I don't know if I totally agree with that. I think maybe like you might use the same method, but you would get better at it. I mean, I know you're doing it. Well, these refining, that, refining you're methods. You're refining it, yeah. I yeah. Mean, well, I mean, it's just, it's otherwise, why would we perform the work that we do repeatedly? Right. Well, that's that's part of what the Kefra 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 formula is. It's right. it's it's sort of the, the this method worked for me. I've I've been refined by meth, my method. And by refining the method, I can now use it for even greater things. Well, one of the really significant changes that occurs, though, is is the composition of the people, the team, the composition mm-hmm. of the people that always changes, which goes back to uh, uh, we were talking about uh, good to great, get the right people on the bus, right. like kind of thing, and it always changes the outcome, and that's like something that we were we were talking about that with uh, like you know these gatherings, you know our. The, the composition of people that are always at this, these gatherings are a little bit 
different every time, and so that creates like this sense of uh, uniqueness with things. Um, although it's a slightly different context because there's not as much, there's not like a clear, you know, linear, um, clear success um, metric um, associated with it. Yeah. But another well, thing that I was going to mention, I can't remember which rule it is, maybe four or five that was your, your and that, that, was, that was it, number five, inner desire doesn't match outer effort won't succeed. And that's a huge key to magic. That's a huge like key to uh, in integrity. I think that's one of the definitions of, of, of integrity, you know, is that your actions your actions match your words. I skipped over, but there's a great one in the middle of that is there, as they're continuing to add players over the years, and, and you're kind of giving lip service, oh yeah, well maybe we'll win this year because we got that guy, but they haven't really changed anything about the narrative. There was a man, I had a picture of him earlier, the Hulk, Andre Dawson. This was during a period in the 1980s uh, when the owners were essentially colluding because of free agency to keep salaries down. And so you had star players unable to get contracts because they were deciding, well, you know what, he's going to want too much money, we're all going to agree not to sign him. So Andre Dawson ended up signing with the Cubs and couldn't come, could not come to terms with them. And what they finally agreed to is like, you know what, I want to play for you guys, just make it happen. Here's a contract. You fill in the amount. They, they chiseled him for uh, like a million or whatever, and he should have had a lot more. Now that eventually got fixed because the there was a big lawsuit. The owners paid blah blah blah. But that, that's a great example of the yeah we, we we need new players, but we're not that serious about winning because we're not willing to pay for it. We're not willing to do the things that need to be done to really make it into a, a winning narrative. It's just the oh well, this is our year. You know you you, you hear every year. You have a team like like my like my Cowboys that invest a year after year after year to keep him almost win a playoff game. A lot of it comes down to have you made the right story, the right legend around your team. And now the Cubs have a different one. Those guys that used to lose all the time, now it's like, well, they won the World Series and they keep going to the League Championship Series and you know they're kind of serious now. Okay, well, uh, thank you, everyone. Well, thank you for listening to another installment of Devanosophy 2.0, the only podcast exploring the congruence of liberty and the left-hand path. For more information, visit our website at www.daemonosophy.com. Follow our tweets at airbeth underscore trans or join the discussion on Facebook at the Daemonosophy Group. Until next time, keep the dark fire burning.